Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Mic check, check one, check two. Are we here? All right, we're here right now. Ish. Hey y'all, what's good? How goes it? And let's get into it. Alright, so I knew about polygamy for a while. You know, the practice of having more than one partner at the same time. But I didn't know about how that might differ from polyamory or polyandry. And I wasn't clear on what relationship anarchy is and how that plays into it all. And for whatever reason, I had never connected the religious and cultural practice of having multiple wives or husbands with the modern concept of polyamory. That was until I heard what we're about to share with you today. I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, coming through with a special episode of Right Nowish. We're passing the microphone to our friends over at The Stoop, a podcast about being part of the African diaspora, dealing with the ins and outs of living through racism, sexism, and all the isms that are pervasive in America. It's a podcast about the messy conversations going on in the group chat, but maybe awkward to have in family gatherings. Plus, they talk about joy, black joy. Can't forget about that. Never forget about that. If you're not already tapped in, The Stoop is hosted by Leela Day and Hana Ababa. They're going to walk us through a few conversations about uh, what I can only call healthy alternatives to monogamy. The Stoop is going to hash it out right after this. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. 
Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Leela. So today we're talking about relationships. Specifically, polyamorous relationships. There are people in triads. We're all connected, so we have dyads within the triad. Like, we all have friends that we love for different reasons. We all have people in our lives that we love equally. I just say that I that's how I love people. All right, Leela, polyamory. I don't know. Uh, we're going there, so let's get into... I got questions. Let, I got questions, too. So poly means... Many, right? And a more, we know that that means love. Yes. So loving many. Loving many. Uh-huh. All right. That's what we're going to be talking about, Anna. Loving many. But what is polyamory? I, I'm still needing a little bit of guidance through this conversation. Well, let's stoop it out. The stoop. The stoop. The stoop. Stories from across the Black diaspora that we need to talk about. My cousins were water and grease girls, and I couldn't be a water and grease girl. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about, ballerina in the hood. We be gullah geechee people. When a black woman walks up to the desk in labor, what preconceived notions do you have about her? I didn't even know we had a hair shark. So, Leela, polyamory. Let's talk to someone who's been thinking about it a lot. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Leela. Hey, hey, Natalie. So, this is Natalie Parrott, our producer. When did you first start thinking about polyamory? Well, for me, I arrived at polyamory through pain. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I'm healed. Healing has been done. Let me take you back to 2018. My partner and I are on the rocks, and this is someone who I had conversations with about marriage and children and all of the things that usually come up in a partnership. And she tells me that she thinks she's in love with her best friend. And so we started having these conversations about polyamory, and I thought, well, could I really do this? I mean, I really love this person. And I don't think we had good tools at the time to talk about this. So you were starting to think, though, about whether you can be in a relationship with somebody who is in a relationship with somebody else, basically. Yeah, it was a series of hard conversations to have. And there were a lot of talks and a lot of tears And ultimately, we decided to break up. But what was left was this idea of polyamory. So then what happened? In true New York fashion, we continued to live together until one of us had enough money to move. And it wasn't long before I began a relationship with someone else. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Moving on. (laughs) And... You know, I still love my former partner, and I also love the person I was dating. 
And for the first time, I felt that I loved, in a romantic way, two people simultaneously, which was a surprise to me at the time. I felt I understood a little of what my former partner was feeling. Mm. So from that moment, I think something inside of me opened. I felt my perspective widen and this particular area of my heart begin to stretch. So have you since then been in a polyamorous relationship? Well, not exactly. I haven't had the opportunity, though I do talk about it with people I date. I feel like I'm kind of still vision boarding. If vision boarding is still a thing, I I feel like I'm still in the vision boarding stage of... I think it's still a thing. My polyamory. It is still a thing. (laughs) So what is it that's interesting to you, Natalie, about polyamory? Well, broadly, I think I am interested in love and I am interested in loving better. And in... Our society, I feel like we've been handed scripts. So scripts Mm. around gender, for example, scripts around how we're supposed to conduct relationships, especially romantic relationships. Scripts. Yeah, scripts. So what's, what's expected of us? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just like we're doing away with or expanding gender in a very visible way presently, though I think this work has always been done throughout history, I think that people are interested in expanding the way that we love. And I met some of those people. Okay, Natalie, take us on your journey. First, there's X. Coming from a really religious background and family, there was a lot of like ideas of what relationships and love was supposed to look like. X is short for extrovert. Then there's intro. It doesn't make sense to really lock yourself away with one person all the time and to separate people so much. Short for introvert. Intro and X are using pseudonyms, the same ones that they use for their podcast called Blocked, which is a podcast that talks about polyamory and mental health and being Black. Intro and X were a couple for many years. And then we dated more seriously. They were friends in high school and college, dating on and off. Then we got engaged, we were married, and so we were monogamous for a few years of our marriage. And it was after those few years of marriage that they noticed things started to shift. I saw her kind of venturing off, you know, outside the relationship, and that was like an issue. She's always very, very honest about it. But I was like, but there's something going on because it's not really about me. Because when I'm around, you're not even thinking about these other kind of things, typically. But I was like, but you need connections with other people. So I was like, so yeah, what about this hot pass? So I wanted to provide for her. I find comfort in making people comfortable. And then there's nobody I want to do that with more than my partners. And then it became more evident that it's like, I want a female partner. Like, I would like a third. Even even that was a conversation because Intro was like, no. He was like, no, I don't like people. X already had someone in mind for their third, a friend of hers named Ambie. But Ambie had some reservations. I feel like I had to get over being with a male partner because my last boyfriend was when I was 15 and I am 32. Ambie is short for ambivert. 
And ambivert is someone who has both introverted and extroverted traits. Ambie says that being with a cis man weighed heavily on her mind because before meeting X in intro, she identified as a lesbian. And so that's kind of why I go by queer now. So still kind of changed how I identify, but in my heart of hearts, I still feel like I'm a lesbian. Like I don't see me ever being in another relationship with a man, but intro, he is very, like, he feels very safe. So that's why I felt good about being in this relationship with X and intro. I just had a feeling that if we got together, we would be able to figure out the rest. And so we were planning, you know, talking about kids and talking about living together and all that, like, pretty quickly, like, top lesbian speed. Like, and um, <laughs> and intro was right with us. Like he was right. He was very supportive. He he encouraged the whole moving in and all that stuff as well. So we were all lesbians, right? Intro. We were all we were yeah, all of this yeah. together. In talking with X, Intro, and Ambie, I watched their ease with one another. A two-person dynamic can be difficult, and I wondered how they were making their relationship work as a triad. And I wondered about tougher emotions. You know, that word that comes up when polyamory is mentioned? The J word? The J word. I know what it is. I think I know. (laughs) Ooh, I'm familiar with it. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I've never been a super jealous person in general. It is a very normal emotion. I also feel like you're kind of conditioned to be possessive that way, though. So, um you kind of have to take your mindset out of it. But um, with it being a, a normal emotion, it's not necessarily the most positive of emotions. It's fine having attachments and former attachments to people, but recognizing that your attachment to somebody and them having an attachment to somebody else doesn't take away from their attachment to you. In most scenarios, it just seems that way. And, you know, good communication always counteracts that. Communication is a word I heard a lot when reporting for this piece. Effective communication is important. And something else I heard a lot too was patriarchy being confronted. When we entered our open relationship and transitioned into our triad, a lot of times when my other male counterparts, my friends, heard about the type of relationship I had or saw the type of relationship I had, the first thing they would go to is, you know, toxic guy behavior like oh oh, so you got two girls right oh you get to do this you get to do that whatever whatever and I'm like yeah now remember and I had to cue them I'm like so you know I don't always do just wild crazy sexual activities all the time sometimes it's just going on a date but that's just setting the stage for my wife also gets to do this gentlemen and they're like oh no 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 never mind never mind I could never I could never I'm like oh so you can cheat on your wife all day (laughs) and you could do this all day you can mess around or you don't mind this image of you. So it's like so territorial. For X, she says polyamory has allowed her to shed some beliefs and own new ones. I finally found the word polyamorous. And I was like, that's me. Like a light bulb went off. I spent years retraining my brain to not feel guilty for, you know, wanting other companionship or even owning my sexuality, owning that I'm a sexual person. Because you know, young Christian girls are taught, 
basically every time you have sex with someone, you're tarnishing your soul, like, or you're giving a piece of yourself away. You're devaluing yourself, you know, trying to get rid of the internalized homophobia that I've been raised to have and not have an idea of like, oh, I just want to be accepted kind of deal. I recently, I've really stepped into the, I deserve to be celebrated, period. Ambi, who is the newest to polyamory, says she had to step beyond what she was used to in relationships. I was a serial monogamist and I have never been in a relationship like this where there was more than one person. So just dealing with different emotions and different personalities was an adjustment. The triad has been together for two years, and now they're on the verge of another adjustment. Yeah, so we are all going to be raising this baby. The family is expecting their first child. And for X, raising a child with two partners might bring a little more ease. And for me, it was also the security of having two partners because it's like, that is more emotional and, you know, mental (laughs) support and also financial. There's a whole nother person in the household as well because we feel like we just have so many skill sets all together. Like how often do you have two educators, one who's a chef, you know, and a therapist all in one household that can pour all that love into a child? We just met Ambi, Intro, and X, and those are some of the best names we've ever had on this podcast. Right, Hannah? Right? <laughs> yes. And one of the things they brought up is jealousy. I have mm-hmm. to be honest with you. It's something I've been thinking about since the beginning of this episode. I know. I know. And a lot of our minds go to that when we think about how people navigate polyamory. Jealousy. Jealousy, it's absolutely natural reaction to have, right? It's something we've all felt. Yeah, I think what might feel different is that they communicate about their jealousy. Mm. Do either of you feel shame for feeling jealous? I have no shame at all being jealous. No, not at all. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm pretty outspoken about when I'm having those feelings. What about you, Hana? It feels like a natural feeling to me that I would feel jealous if my partner was with somebody else. I feel no shame. Yeah, and you shouldn't feel shame. I think it's a shame-free podcast. Or at least a shame a shame-free episode. <laughs> and I love digging into these questions because you know, a lot of this stuff requires a lot of self-reflection. And I talked about this with someone else I wanted you all to meet. Like everyone who's ever been in love has felt attraction for other people and then like having to shutter off parts of yourself like monogamy started to make less and less sense to me this is kevin patterson he's been polyamorous for 19 years and he says he found polyamory by accident on a trip one year 
I just started dating somebody new. Uh, we were planning on taking a, a trip to Toronto together amongst a few friends. I made a joke about the trip, like maybe a week or two beforehand. I said, you know, a lot of sexually active young people, a lot of partying and drinking, you know, anything might happen. And anything did happen. Me and this uh, this new girlfriend and one of her friends, we ended up spending a few hours rolling around together. And next thing you know, instead of getting awkward like I thought it was going to get awkward, instead it just opened us up to have new conversations about what kind of relationship we wanted to have, what we wanted our exclusivity to look like, if we wanted exclusivity at all. And Kevin still knows this person. She's my wife. We've been married for 14 years. And within those 14 years, they've had two kids and built a life together. He uses the term relationship anarchy to describe the way he practices polyamory. Every person that I meet, our relationship uh, just sort of forms naturally. Like, I don't try to put anybody in one box or another if that's not what suits this person. I decided to talk to Kevin because of the work he has done and does when it comes to polyamory. He's written a book, he hosts workshops, and he seems to have a presence in the polyamorous community that he belongs to. He's also been polyamorous for a long time. And Kevin tells me an important practice in polyamory is communicating. I actually had a a lesson very early in my journey where I was dating someone who I cared a lot about. She was very overbooked. I didn't get to see her very often. And it was a really frustrating situation, and it it led to us breaking up. Not too long after that, I met someone else who was similarly as busy. And I just said, you know what, Kev? I'm not going to make a five-year plan here. I'm just going to commit to trying to see this person whenever I can. And this realization, getting in touch with his expectations, has helped him nurture the relationships that he values. And when we see each other, it's going to be awesome. And that was it. That was the solo expectation. Like 99% of our problems are either communication or scheduling. And mostly it's just communication. For Kevin, being polyamorous meant trying to find like-minded people, which is how he found himself at meetups and gatherings. And it wasn't always easy finding Black people in those spaces, even in a very Black city like Philly. Most of the folks you're going to get in an event are white folks. Where I live, it's 40-something percent Black. So to go to an event in Philadelphia and to find myself as one of, or most times, the only Black person, you run into a lot of othering. You run into a lot of fetishization, you know? Sometimes you go to a space and you're Black and people think that you being Black is the only thing you have to offer to that space. I've run into people who felt like fetishizing my race was the way to go. And then they end up on the end of a long, drawn-out, uncomfortable conversation that they weren't buying into. Being the only Black man at the polyamory meetings became a bit of a mission for Kevin to put an end to. He approached organizers about it and asked them what they would do to change this. Some people responded really well to that, and some organizers were like, oh, wow, you know, thank you for highlighting a problem. Thank you for pointing out what's going on with our demographics. Let's talk about what we can do to make this a better situation, a safer situation. Some people were like, fuck that guy. 
Kevin eventually wrote a book called Love's Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. His goal was to diversify these meetups, and through this work, he was starting to learn a lot from new people he was meeting. The younger folks would bring so much information about, like, identity politics, you know? Where me being Black is an all-the-time thing, and it's something I think about all the goddamn time. Whereas I wasn't thinking a lot about other people's experiences as women, as, you know, as transgender, as, uh, as queer. Being introduced to these terms, these experiences, and people led Kevin to begin to think about his sexuality more broadly. And like, while I identify as queer now, that's a relatively new thing for me. That's like a a, a 2018 and up thing. Whereas the previous 40 years of my life, I was identifying very comfortably as straight. So I never really thought about what was going on in queer communities. That's sort of an amazing thing in that like my attraction started to shift. It's like, oh, okay, well, here are some trans women that I find attractive. And here are some trans men that I find attractive. Oh, shit, here's a couple of cis men that I find attractive. Didn't see that coming. And if that had been me in high school, I would have had to hide that because... You know, I was in an all-boys high school, and you know, I'm I'm living with these West Indian parents. As the child of West Indian parents myself, hi mom, hi dad, I know being queer can be a big deal. There is a lot of rigidity around sexual expression and gender roles, especially roles that don't lean toward the hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine. And the fear of being disowned, ostracized, or being a victim of violence, whether by your community or your family, all of that is very real. These are things that might have, you know, caused danger to my safety, caused danger to my health and well-being, to my freedom. Whereas at age 39, 40, when my attraction started to shift, I was already surrounded by so many sex-positive, queer-friendly people. There was no closet. It was no coming out. It was like, oh, wow, here's some new information about myself. And everyone around me was like, oh, cool, cool. You know, Natalie, hearing Kevin tell his story, it makes me think about all of the social expectations that are just put on us. Yeah, I mean, this is also another reason I enjoy talking to Kevin. I think everyone suffers under patriarchy. And as a Black woman, I am often thinking about my Black male peers, many of whom I think of as my brothers, some of Mm -hmm. whom have been my lovers. And I want them to be able to have a full range of experiences and self-exploration without any harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you think about what type of Black we're supposed to be, what type of men or women we're expected to be. Expected to be. Yeah, or what kind of gender non-conforming person or trans person we're supposed to be. A lot of us have worked through and are working through those things, and... Kevin is just an example. When I have experiences that are atypical of Black men, I feel like I'm expanding what Black men are. I'm not feeling like I'm outside of Blackness. I'm feeling like I'm expanding Blackness. And I feel that way about polyamory, where 
there are so many times where I've brought up polyamory and I've heard someone say, like, yeah, but isn't that that white people shit? And I could be like, I'm doing white people shit or I'm expanding what black people are doing. And I feel that really strongly. So hearing all of this, it sounds really familiar to me in an interesting way, because one of the things I think about is this connection, if there is a connection, to what we're talking about, polyamory, and what I know to happen where I come from. So I know in Sudan, there's a lot of polygyny, where men marry multiple wives. It's a kind of polygamy, and polygamy means people having multiple spouses overall. But when it's a man marrying multiple women, it's called polygyny. And that's what I see a lot back in Sudan. And lots of African communities practice polygyny. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question now that I'm hearing Natalie and today's episode is, is that polyamory? Huh. Right? Because huh. a lot of the times this polygyny back home It's about practical stuff, practical reasons. It may be about having more children. It may be about building relationships between tribes. It may be about building, like, wealth. I don't know. Hmm. Right. And there are areas of the world and in Africa where it's the other way around. It's polyandry, where it's one woman married to multiple men. Yes, and it's in the news a lot right now in South Africa, where there's this proposed new marriage law which would make polyandry legal. Of course, a lot of people are pushing back on that, especially a lot of religious groups. Mm-hmm. And Lila, what's interesting is that we don't hear a lot about polyandry. Like, I've heard so much about polygyny. I know it. It's something that I know I have a reference to. But I don't hear a lot about polyandry. Mm. You know, Hana Lila, talking about this makes me think about Black culture in the diaspora and that this type of family building might just be part of our heritage. So, Lila, Hana, there is someone else I want you to meet who has another perspective on polyamory. So solo poly means that I'm not entwined with another person, so I'm not living with them. I'm not sharing finances with somebody. Um, I'm not doing childcare responsibilities with somebody else. For Crystal, she is the solo in solo polyamory, meaning that she's romantically independent but has multiple relationships. I'm kind of my own person. I still have romantic and sexual relationships with multiple people, but... It's really like I'm in my own house and do my own thing. Crystal doesn't distinguish between romantic partners and friends. Sometimes her friends are people she's romantically involved with. Outside of romance, Crystal so values the support that relationships provide, just not in a traditional way. I want to have a support network. I want to have people who can watch my kids. You know, I want to have people who can take me to the hospital. You know, I want people that I can invest in things with. I want to build, like, houses. I want to build our wealth. 
Crystal is originally from the South and moved away for a time before returning to North Carolina. I mean, it's a relatively urban area, so you have a lot of families, you have a lot of working poor. And so my mom was a single mom. I'm a single mom. She says that she didn't have the vocabulary for it at the time, but she feels like she grew up in a polyamorous household without even knowing it. My mom, she's always been non-monogamous, but that's not something that she recognized in herself. You know, there were several people who were in my mom's life and I wasn't always sure what was going on with them. But, you know, to come back later and like, oh, those were boyfriends, you know, those were partners. But I still had my dad and he was still my dad. And he had, you know, he has lots of people that he's been in relationships with. So Crystal tells me that she's more open with her mom and daughter than maybe her mom was with Crystal growing up. Most of my partners have met my daughter. Some of them have met my mom. You know, one of them has met my ex-husband. <laughs> so, yeah, so they're, they're a part of my life. You know, my mom knows their names, at least. You know, if I ever disappeared, you know, they would be the first people she would call being like, what'd you, what'd you do to my daughter? <laughs> but I'm not like always taking pictures with my partners or doing lovey-dovey things. And that's just, yeah, not me. Crystal also had a strong family support network. She grew up with aunties and grandparents taking care of her. And when it comes to her own daughter, who's a preteen, she doesn't shy away from talking about polyamory. It's really hard to know what she thinks because, you know, she's 10 and she doesn't always like express her thoughts to me. But I know she knows about polyamory. She knows about being queer and all this stuff. And so she's like, you know, exploring that on her own. And I'm just respecting that, yeah, that journey. Crystal and I talked about a lot. We talked about marriage. Crystal was married for 10 years. And we talked about relationship expectations, even ones that come up in polyamorous communities. I mean, that's one thing that a lot of new Black people come in with is this idea that, oh, it's going to be one man and he's going to have sister wives and all this stuff. And, you know, you kind of have to say, no, we're not we're not doing that. You know, that's from our past, but that's not going to be, you know, what we currently do. And it's recognizing that part of Black polyamory is this kind of feminist, um, it's called womanism. Part of it is recognizing our agency and some of the you know, it kind of goes back to the matriarchy and the primacy of women, but it's just counterbalancing that kind of expectation that the man is going to be in charge and having all the sex and stuff like that. Whereas, no, it's actually the women are going to be, you know, having agency over their own bodies and their relationships. And yeah, we'll be sister wives, but it's on our terms, you know, and if, if we want to have sex, we can. If we don't, we don't. When I came back to the South and kind of discovered my local neighborhood is that Black people already kind of have a tolerance for non-monogamy. There's a lot of that already there that happens. You know, it's not always ethical and it definitely still hurts people, but it's much more like if you phrase it the right way or, you know, baby mom and baby daddy and all that, then it's there and it's acceptable for people. And that's something I've thought about too. How when we don't live this nuclear family model, There is a lot of criticism from outside and inside the Black community about how we as Black people organize ourselves in our romantic relationships. Our judgments then perpetuate certain stereotypes about single mothers or single fathers or parents. And that's a problem. There's this whole kind of drive to build Black community and kind of like take back our independence to be self-sustaining. All these single mothers 
and you know, you can debate the reasons for it or whatever, but there's some acceptance and knowledge that, you know, these people are going to be taken care of and they can still have sex lives, you know, because they're adults and they deserve that. It's been there all the time and it's kind of a survival tactic, but it's also just like a willingness to know that love doesn't just mean like you're married to somebody or that you, you know, have some kind of document between them. Being Black and polyamorous means that you are not just thinking about, oh, I want to have great relationships with individual people. It's, I want to have my village around me. All right. So, Natalie, how are you feeling about all of this? My interest is peaked. I have more questions. I'm feeling a little inspired. I tend towards rigidity in certain areas of my life, and I appreciate the fluidity that has shown itself in these conversations. There are many, many, many ways to love, and we're hearing some of that. So do you feel that you could be ready to be in a polyamorous relationship? Hmm. Ready. <laughs> well, it's certainly an option, and I definitely have a better idea of how to move through some of these things. So I guess all that is left to do is try. And that is The Stoop. The Stoop is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported, artist-owned podcasts. Big thanks to Natalie Parrott. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you both. And thank you to everyone who shared their stories for this episode. Special thanks to engineer James Rollins, art by Nima Iyer, music by Daoud Anthony, and additional editing by Jen Chen. Support for The Stoop comes from Cal Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the NEH. Find them at calhum.org. And special thanks to the NPR Story Lab. Bye. Bye. Gotta give a huge thank you to our friends, The Stoop. Their latest episode touches on a plethora of good things like the meaning of dreams. Be sure to check out The Stoop wherever you listen to podcasts and follow them at The Stoop Podcast, all one word, on Instagram and Twitter. We'll drop the links in the show notes. I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, letting you all know that we will be back next week. Until then, y'all take care. Thanks for listening. Right Nowish is a production of KQED. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. 
visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.